many lenses, expert discussions on objects and artefacts from different perspectives for different lenses. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Lottie Armit, and welcome to episode three of Many Lenses, the series in which we invite experts from the world of history and art to discuss historical artefacts from varying lenses. On today's show, we are lucky to be joined by two experts in Dutch colonialism and the impacts of slavery, who will share their knowledge and expertise with us based on artefacts they have chosen from the slavery exhibition at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. I too will be offering my perspective on an artefact that I have chosen from the same exhibition. First of all, we have Dr. Thomas Williams with us. Thank you for being with us on this episode, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to presenting my artifact to you and to our audience, as well as sharing my insights in discussion of the other experts' chosen artifacts. We're also joined by Dr. Maya Pele. Welcome to the show, Maya. It's a pleasure to be here. I think this is a brilliant series and I'm really looking forward to being just a small part of it today. I think it'll be really interesting and beneficial to offer alternative perspectives to the important artefacts we have chosen. Definitely. So let's begin our discussion today. The artefact I will be discussing is a painting by Dutch Golden Age still life painter Dirk Falkenberg called Slave Dance, but it is also referred to as Ritual Slave Party on a sugar plantation in Suriname. The painting was produced in 1707, so around 40 years after Suriname became a Dutch colony. And as the title suggests, it is a vivid scene depicting a group of African slaves on a sugar plantation in Suriname. It forms part of our exhibition in the slavery section of the Rijksmuseum, and it is considered by historians to be the earliest known painting with plantation slaves as its main subject. The painting, though, does not depict the slaves working in the fields of the plantation, as one might expect but instead gathered in a kind of sandy courtyard of their outside living area. Once a year, the enslaved people were allowed to come together for a celebration. This painting is a presentation of that celebration, making it an interesting depiction as we see the slaves outside of the usual domain of labour. The foreground and main body of the painting is taken up fully by the slaves who are gathered in a huddle and are all scantily clad. Many are semi-nude and wearing only a sarong-type skirt or a thin piece of cloth for dignity. By doing this, the painter places emphasis on the slave skin and their naked bodies. Their black skin is painted to look shiny and glossy, almost reflective, which I will discuss more in a moment. Falkenberg depicts the slaves sitting and standing some dancing, some kissing, some playing with their children, and some playing what appear to be traditional African djembe drums. Behind them is a large billow of smoke, coming from a metal pipe smoked by one of the men, as well as two huts with thatched roofs. 
In the far background, the sky is light blue and we see palm trees and some small cottages that look slightly more official. They appear to be made of brick as opposed to being thatched huts, perhaps therefore belonging to the wealthy leaders of the plantation. It really sounds like an interesting painting, so much to unpack. Uh, you mentioned that the painter was Dutch. Can you tell us a bit more about him? Why was he in Suriname at the time? Yes, so the painting was produced by a man called Dirk Falkenberg, who was a Dutch still-life specialist. So in 1706, he was commissioned by a Dutch man called Jonas Witsen to go to Suriname and paint the landscape there. Now, Jonas Witsen was the city secretary of Amsterdam, and he had been married to a lady called Elizabeth Baselius, who was a wealthy heiress. Unfortunately, she died during childbirth, but when she did, she left all of her inheritance to her husband, which included three sugar plantations in Suriname. So Witsum was now an elite wealthy plantation owner and he collected arts and curiosities in cabinets. So he instructed Falkenberg to go to Suriname and document his new plantations for him to have on display back in Amsterdam. Personally, I think it's really interesting that it was painted by a Dutchman for a Dutchman on a visit to Suriname to be displayed in the Netherlands for a Dutch audience. Do you think this context has an effect on the painting? Yes, I would argue that it does. I think it is hugely significant that we are viewing Suriname and the African slaves through a Dutch lens and for a Dutch audience. I think we have to consider whether this distorts our view of the slaves depicted. Personally, I think this painting could actually be viewed and analysed through an adapted Orientalist lens. Orientalism was a term coined by academic Edward Said, referring to a form of knowledge that authorises and justifies the assertion of Western power over the East. It is a form of looking at and representing, seeing the East through one often stereotyped lens. Obviously, this painting is of African slaves in Suriname, so the Orientalist lens as we know it cannot necessarily be applied to this painting. But research suggests a variation of the term known as Black Orientalism, which focuses on the looking at and representation of Africa and its people by the rest of the world, could perhaps be applied in this example, as the painting is a Dutch gaze on the African people. According to a quotation by Rebecca Parker Breenan, a professor in art history at the University of Miami, in an article she wrote on this painting, Dirk Falkenberg, the painter, was instructed by Jonas Whitson to make representations of life and to not only document the plantations in Suriname, but also the exotic wonders that could be encountered there. I think this very quotation clearly points to an Orientalist-like attitude in that this Dutch official saw the African slaves on his plantation as exotic wonders who needed to be documented. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I think the context that Jonas Whitson collected art and curiosities to exhibit in Amsterdam also contributes to this and is very significant. To me, the fact that he had requested a painting of the slaves that he owned to put on display would make it fair to suggest that they were like collectible items to him especially also given the fact that Valkenberg was a still-life painter. Still-life painting is often a celebration of material pleasures and commodities and demonstrates ownership of such commodities. 
So is this painting the means through which Whitson could show off his possessions, the slaves and the plantations that he had ownership of? I think you make a really good point. I think you could definitely argue that the painting was produced as a method of advertisement by Jonas Whitson. I also think the painting style and the presentation of the slaves' bodies by Dirk Falkenberg is used to emphasise the economic quality and value of the enslaved people. The painting is set in an outdoor tropical location, yet Falkenberg uses an unnaturally clear white light on the slaves, highlighting the glossy surface of their bodies and making their skin look highly reflective. According to my research, at this time, traders in African slaves specifically looked for and viewed a high gloss to the skin as visual insurance of productive potential and general health. Linking back to the idea of black orientalism, I think Falkenberg looked at these people with an objectifying and denigrating colonial gaze and presented them in such a way that would allow Witsen to advertise and show off the economic value of his slaves back in the Netherlands. So for me personally, I can see where you're coming from, but maybe you could also argue that Falkenberg's depiction is actually an admiration of the slaves' bodies that by placing such detail on the gloss of their skin, he emphasizes the beauty of the enslaved people. If the slaves were depicted at work or in the fields, their glossy reflective skin would probably be presented as the result of the sweat of labor. But I think that by presenting them at their leisure, I would argue that maybe their shining glossy skin is represented as an inherent quality of the skin itself and therefore maybe demonstrates the painter's admiration. That's a really interesting observation. I hadn't considered the painting in that way. It goes to show how we all read and interpret art and history differently, which can make for lots of alternative lenses. I think it's clear that my artefact tells us a lot about how enslaved people in Suriname were viewed and presented. There's also a lot to learn about how slaves in Suriname were treated. Speaking of this, Dr Williams, could you introduce your artefact to us and to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So my artefact is also from the slavery exhibition in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, which is a museum dedicated to Dutch arts and history. The specific artefact I've chosen to present is in the Wally exhibition, a collection of items that are related to the Dutch organised slave trade in Suriname. And the main object I'll be focusing on is the transcript of the interrogation of Wally from the archives of the Society of Suriname in 1707. The audio description of the exhibition is narrated by former Surinamese world champion kickboxer Remy Bonyaski, and he describes the story of Wally, a young male who was forced into the slave trade in Suriname. The exhibition also features one of the large cast iron sugar kettles, which they called kappas, which the 155 enslaved and displaced from their families had to dangerously use all the time since if the sugar was not processed within 24 hours, it would go acidic, forcing the slaves to work around the clock every single day. The transcript of the interrogation describes how Wally had finally had enough of being forced to work 24-7 and decided to run away with his friends and find refuge in the nearby forests. The text, along with paintings in the exhibition, describe and show how running away was punishable with death by immolation. So on the 10th of August, 1707, Wally and his friends were murdered by being burnt alive while having their flesh torn off with pincers. 
after their skulls were placed on sticks as warning to the other slaves to not do the same thing. And there's a painting of skulls on a stick with a human being burnt alive in the background in this exhibition. So we can see from both of the texts and the paintings how awful the practices used by the slave masters were and the kind of turmoil that the slaves went through. We can also link this to the concept of white innocence since the Dutch West and East India Company claimed to engage in trade that brought everyone together when in reality they were carrying out these awful acts on the Surinamese. Additionally, we can also look at how there was a difference in treatment between the inhabitants of Suriname and Indonesia, despite both being countries under Dutch rule in similar times. It's interesting how you mentioned the difference between Suriname and Indonesia. It's interesting to compare the two colonial stories of Suriname and Indonesia, as there were definitely a lot of differences. In Indonesia, there was no displacement of the inhabitants. However, in Suriname, there was a whole pool of displaced people from different ethnic backgrounds, such as the indigenous population, as well as West Africans and Hindustanis. However, in contrast to your view, I would argue that actually there was a similarity between Suriname and Indonesia in the treatment of inhabitants by the Dutch rulers. For example, when you described Wally's brutal murder, it reminded me of a character called Saija, from a book called Max Havelaar by Multatuli, which was a protest against Dutch colonial policy in Indonesia. The character Sajjar in this book was stabbed by a Dutch soldier, and the story itself attacks the behaviour of the colonial and local rulers in Indonesia, which I would argue you could say is similar to the story of Wally. Yeah, it is also interesting to see how Suriname was effectively just thrown away by the Dutch in the 20th century after it was considered to be a money drain with the Dutch leaving Suriname with their language, culture and development of a mixed race elite as well as all of the generational trauma stemming from the outrageous acts carried out by the Dutch such as the devastating story of Wally. Whereas in Indonesia there was perhaps a degree of respect for the locals and exchange between the Dutch settlers and the local population it's also interesting, actually, that not only did the Dutch have a significant impact on both Indonesia and Suriname, but also in Brazil, which links quite well to my artefact. That's great. Yes, please introduce your artefact to us, Maya. So the artefact that I have found is these two portraits of Opia Kopid and her first husband, Martin Solmans, captured by the great portraitist Rembrandt. These paintings are also hung in the slavery exhibition in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, where they have hung since 2012. So the paintings show two bourgeoisie dressed in their finery on their wedding day. And without even beginning to study the paintings, we can already see from their attire and their extremely confident postures that they are clearly very wealthy. So Opya, other than the fact she grew up in the Netherlands and married Martin Solmans fairly young, we do not know much about her early life. However, we do know about her later life and about the wealth she gained from two economically beneficial marriages. So Martin Solmans, her first husband, grew up very wealthy from his father's ownership of many sugar plantations in Brazil. He became extremely rich, but then died at the age of 28, leaving Opia with a great sum of money. Opia then went on to marry Martin Day, 
Martin had worked as a soldier for years in Brazil under the Dutch East India Company's rule and in the process had become extremely wealthy. He owned slaves, including an African woman, Francisca, whom he had a child with. It is recorded that Martin held Francisca captive for around four months, raping and abusing her, thus resulting in pregnancy. Martin then left Brazil and returned home to the Netherlands, completely scot-free, where he then married Obdi. So through this story and many other stories and artefacts recorded, we can see how much the slave trade in South America and the history of the Netherlands are directly linked, because this wealth gained through the oppression of slaves and the exploitation of these workers will have made its way back to the Netherlands, like in the story of Opia, and will have not only been passed down through generations and benefited each individual who gained this wealth, um, but it would have also had economic benefits and impacts on the development of the country. Also through this story, you can comment on the concept of white innocence. So white innocence was a term explored by Gloria Wecker in her book, White Innocence, which explores how the denial of racism and expression of innocence safeguards white privilege. Was Opia aware of her husband's work in Brazil and the oppressive source of her wealth, or was she simply unaware and thus an innocent benefactor of slave trade due to her lack of direct involvement and ignorance to the atrocities caused to bring her riches? Personally, I think the latter, but what do you think, Lottie? Yeah, it's interesting that you describe this in terms of white innocence. I think I would have to disagree, actually. Although she didn't directly oppress anyone, surely Opia knew about the work that her husband was doing and the company that he was part of. How could you not be aware of that? When I read into this, I found that apparently she even had a painting of a sugar mill on display in her and her husband's house. To me, this looks like an example of white ignorance as opposed to white innocence. Yeah, I agree that perhaps she may have known parts of her husband's work, for example, the type of work perhaps, or like the sugar mills that he worked on, um, and maybe the Dutch involvement. However, how much she actually knew, especially the violence occurring, I think is completely up for debate. I would argue that neither husband would have disclosed the true atrocities of their work, especially to a woman at the time, uh, when women weren't expected to be largely involved in their husband's work. It is also true that at the time the Dutch East India Company would have told the Dutch that they were engaging in trade that brought everyone together. Therefore, Opia might have just thought that and didn't realise what was actually going on in South America. Therefore, I think it is impossible to be completely certain of innocence or ignorance or both, but I think there are fair arguments for each viewpoint. This argument is such a contemporary argument nowadays, as historians and activists continue to explore in much more depth the stories and accounts of those well-known around the world for their achievements. We are beginning to learn that those who we may celebrate with statues and monuments perhaps should not be celebrated and how these figures should be shown and learnt about without being celebrated as such. Museums like the Rijksmuseum, for example, um, shows this exactly. Thomas, what do you think? For me, having these portraits in museums is exactly how history should be shown as it sparks conversation without drawing too much attention to these people, as opposed to, for example, the very controversial existence of statues in the streets. We can see both in cities in England and in the Netherlands statues of wealthy people, many of whom have acquired their wealth from exploiting other countries, such as Edward Colston in Bristol. He was a former slave trader, 
but there was a statue of him in the city centre, and it was kept up since he'd donated money to the city, until during the BLM movement in 2020 when protesters pulled it down and threw it into a river. So, by having these artefacts in museums where it's more educational rather than a showcase of the person, it is less likely to offend anyone while also present in the history. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. It's been such an interesting discussion and I think what's been particularly interesting is observing how each of our artefacts link to the conversation around the impact of slavery. Obviously, my artefact and Thomas's have focused on the Dutch colonial impact on and view of the enslaved people. And Maya's artefact has explored the impact of slavery on the rich and the wealthy who benefited from it. So thank you to Thomas and Maya, our guests, for coming along today and for sharing your insights. Thank you so much, Lottie. It's been a great experience. Yes, thank you so much for having us. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. Yes, and we hope you'll join us next time for our next episode of Many Lenses. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.